Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. This is Monsters Who Murder, Serial Killer Confessions. With Amanda Howard and Robert McKnight. Hello and welcome to a brand new episode of Monsters Who Murder, Serial Killer Confessions. I'm Rob McKnight and I'm joined by the serial killer whisperer, Amanda Howard. Hello, Amanda. Hello, Rob McKnight. How are you going? <laughs> hey, look, this is a big one. B-T-K. Yeah, so it's been really unusual doing this one. Usually I do the notes for an episode and then we sort of split it up the more we talk but this one I've already split into two sections and I haven't even finished yet but this one keeps giving me migraines why is that I don't know there's this really bad energy and going through his his confession which is just the the court confession it's it's giving me bad juju I don't know what's going on but it's really odd Yeah, but it's a hell of a confession. It's fascinating to listen to, and I hope that the true crime fans who listen to this podcast enjoy it. Of course, it stands for Bind, Torture, Kill, which is one of the first things in true crime you you taught me, Amanda. I'm glad I could teach you something. I'm not sure that's that's a boast or not, but <laughs> <laughs> but yes, bind, torture, kill. So people call him the BTK killer, but that's actually incorrect. Well, that is coming up a little later on this edition of Monster Sue Murder. In the meantime, let's bring you up to speed with the latest news headlines. And the youngest known victim of the notorious Green River serial killer has been identified almost 37 years after her remains were discovered near Seattle, Washington. 14-year-old Wendy Stevens had run away from her Denver home before she was murdered by Ridgeway. It's through genealogy DNA the police have been able to give her back her identity, having been known for almost 40 years as Bones 10. Amanda, Gary Ridgeway was the Green River Killer. Tell me a bit about him. Uh, well, I guess he still is the uh, the Green River Killer, so he's, he's going to have that name forever. Um, but he uh, was uh, captured in 2001, and, and we did his case a few weeks ago, and um, he had been unknown for so long, and there is confessions that he made that suggested that he'd actually killed up to 71 people, but he was only convicted of 49, and then he did a plea deal and all of that, so that's as far as it's going to go. But it's so good to see that though this case is essentially closed, they're never closed because they do do this. They try and make sure that these victims do have names and that they are returned to their families. So this is so great that though she was known as Bones 10 for so long, she's actually now got a name and she now has a family with closure. Well, serial killer Martin Ney, known as the Masked Killer, has now been linked to another child murder in France. Ney, who is serving life in prison for the murders of three children in Germany, has been charged with murder and kidnapping over the disappearance of Jonathan Collum at a school holiday camp in western France. Amanda, isn't he also a suspect in the disappearance of Maddie McCann? Oh, yes and no. So um, there are people that are suggesting he could be the killer because he was in the area at the time and now we know that he is um, a confessed child killer and he actually confessed to this new case. But most people aren't looking at him as a suspect, though he's in in the list. Um, Others, especially in Germany, are actually looking at Christian Brockner as a possible connection. But because he's a child killer, he was in the area, area. Um, There's a history that is similar to the disappearance of Madeleine McCann. There is some suggestion that he may be involved. (laughs) I would suggest you need a bit more evidence than he was in the vicinity. (laughs) Well, yeah, there was apparently 200 pedophiles within the vicinity. So, I mean, the list keeps getting longer rather than shorter, that's for sure. The Maddie McCain case is fascinating that the investigators still want more money. They've been down so many rabbit holes. Is there a point where you say 
you just have to move on? Um, well, I mean, we're talking about a, a possibly murdered child, so really do you ever want to move on? But these cases we find... But if... how many resources go to one case? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. And there is other cases that are called, you know, the Spanish Madeleine McCann and the American Madeleine McCann and there's things like this that happen. But it's a lot to do with how those first few hours are treated. And um, I'm currently working on our cold case series on um, Jean-Baptiste Ramsey and the amount of errors that happen in just those first few hours creates chaos in the case. And so things that could have been helped to solve these cases is lost because um, scenes aren't locked down, the right people aren't interviewed, areas aren't um, roadblocked and things like that because we tend to believe that there is something more innocent than happens. Though in the Madeleine McCann case, um, her mother actually started from a place of, of sinister deeds. So it's quite interesting that no one else believed her for several days and so this is, is now where it's at and we're, you know, I think more than a decade later now that we're still looking at this case. But I don't think um, these cases ever go away. I mean, look at Jack the Ripper. You know, that's 1888 and we're still talking sure. about it. But, oh, um, no, no, I, I understand the fascination with the case and we would all want a good resolution where the girl is found and reunited with her parents. But I'm talking about when it comes to public the public purse, yes, you keep the case open, but how far do you go in having a team investigating this solely as a full team? Well, interesting that you actually bring up this question because this is how they solved the BTK case. The police come out, and, and we'll talk about it in just a second, the police actually come out and said, BTK, he's obviously dead or, or in prison somewhere, we're calling it cold, we're shutting down the team after so long, it's done. And he didn't like that and he came out of the woodwork again. So, oh. you know, so sometimes it's, it's good to close it down to see what the reaction is, but with a, a child case, um, I don't think they're ever really closed down forever. There is always someone working on it and that's why we do have these cold case teams and we do sure. have these genealogy teams that are now working on cases like this. Sure. One last question on this. Yep. This isn't a Maddie McCann episode, <laughs> but I will ask, in everything that you've seen in your studies, <laughs> is there, she's got to be dead, right? Like, wouldn't it be a case of whoever took her, even if they had kept her alive, with so much worldwide attention on her, wouldn't they have panicked and even if they had wanted to adopt her or whatever, actually killed her out of fear? Well, J.C. Lee Dugard was um, kidnapped for 18 years. Elizabeth Fritzel was kept by her father in a dungeon for mm. 25 years. So, mm. um, you know, we don't have proof of life or proof of death. So, I mean, I guess it's like Schrodinger's cat. She's either alive unless we know opposite or, she, or she's dead until we are confirmed of life. So, um, you know, you don't want to give up hope. But at the same time, you also don't want to think that she has spent this last decade or so um, being raped every day. I mean, so yeah. what what is, is the comfort a dead child or... A a living child. I mean, sometimes you sort of have to weigh up those options. But um, I think this is a case that I'd love to see solved, but I think it, it may be one of those that we sit and talk about and we'll be here at 55 talking about this and 65 even if you let me do all the seasons I've got. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure. All right, we'll move on. And a serial killer known as the Brooklyn Handyman is believed to be responsible for a third death. Police have arrested and charged Kevin Gavin in relation to the deaths of Myrtle McKenney in 2015, Jackie James in 2019 and Juanita Caballero on January 15 this year. So, Amanda, this is a new serial killer. Yes, and he's already in my database. So he's not as a convicted killer. So it's still before the courts, obviously. So these are all allegations. But, yes, yep. he was actually caught um, just last week. And so um, they've now been able to link this case to two others, as, as you said, in 2015 as well. So um, this is just a case that's building as light to me, me that we're following as well. Um, they seem to be adding more um, charges against them before they actually take it to court and obviously with COVID shutting down a lot of the court system um, they're actually sitting on these sorts of, of things and going through it but um, yeah apparently 
this wasn't even seen as a serial killer case. These were actually um, being investigated as single killings and they've now been able to link them to Kevin Gavin, uh, uh, allegedly. And so, yeah, so, you know, we have now he is, I think, about 66 years old and so he's been killing for a while and quite late. As you know, many people like to believe that serial killers have a pattern and they're usually, you know, between 19 and, and, and 32 years of age, but he's 66 and has been killing for six years. So is it that he started late or are we about to investigate the last 40 years of this man's life to see if there's any other cases that can be linked to Mm. him? Very, very interesting. Well, there's a big development in the world of monsters who murder, and I'm not talking about the new whoosh that we use in our clips. (laughs) I'm talking about a new Patreon feature where you can take out a year's subscription and get a 10% discount. Just go to patreon.com slash nwmconfessions to see all the different tiers and the bonuses that you can get for as little as $5 a month. And as I said, a 10% discount for those who take out an annual subscription. That's patreon.com slash mwm confessions we'll be right back with btk when you're ready to pop the question the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring at blue nile.com you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online choose your diamond and setting when you found the one you'll get it delivered right to your door Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Shocking celebrity secrets. Justin Bieber's word against mine. Backstage drama. All of a sudden, Dolly Parton walks into the room. And controversial opinions. I'm not saying she's been approached. I'm saying this is what I'm hearing is the crunching options. TV Black Box, the podcast where people who've worked in the TV industry spill their juiciest stories. Julie used to like to drink on set. TV Black Box, available in your favourite podcast feed. On February 26, 2005, a police media conference was held and there was a frenzy in a lot of online crime groups that it was possible the BTK case had been solved. Wichita police announced that 59-year-old Dennis Rader had been arrested. Here's a clip from that news conference. Yesterday afternoon, agents from the DBI, agents from the FBI, members of the Wichita Police Department Joseph Otero, Julie Otero, Josephine Otero, Joseph Otero Jr., Catherine Bright, Shirley Diane Relford, Nancy Fox, and Vicki Wagerly. He was arrested for first-degree murder of all those victims. at this time in an undisclosed location. We will be approaching the district attorney's office next week, reference charges to see if charges will be filed against this individual. So, Amanda, as we mentioned, that was huge news in true crime circles. Yeah, and I'm showing my age by saying this wasn't Facebook. This was on Yahoo groups all those many, (laughs) many decades ago. So I'm really showing my age. But I remember the buzz that happened. There was all like, oh, there's about to be a press conference in Wichita. You know, what's going to happen? Do we think it's happening? Because there had been news that the killer had actually started to correspond again and all this sort of stuff. So basically this is one of those cases that we all sort of tried to find online news and watching it buffer and do all those hor- horrible things that dial-in internet used to do. And we watched this live as they gave us the name of the serial killer. And this is someone, this is like the case was up there with Jack the Ripper and Zodiac and all these sorts of big cases and mm. even Green River. And it's just amazing that we were able to sort of see this play out on the internet. I mean, these days we can see it every day. As as we just mentioned, there's a brand new serial killer just last week. But this was a big one. Yeah, it's interesting. You just mentioned um, Gary Ridgway and we talked about him earlier in the episode. You were 
disappointed, shall we say, <laughs> with the intelligence of Ridgeway. Do you feel the same about Raider? Uh, no, Ridgeway, yeah, he was a major disappointment. I wanted to see someone that was sinister and clever and sort of knew how to manoeuvre through um, a police interview, but he was just sort of, yeah, I did that. And next, please. Whereas BTK, I mean, what we're using here is his final confession in court. So we've actually gone through a lot lot of steps to get there. But he has this vibe and this emotional response, which is really different to any other killer I've, I've looked at. Now, I have avoided doing this case purely because I thought that it was... I don't know, just along the lines of Ridgeway, I thought I didn't want to go down that same track. But um, Raider has me to a point, it's beyond fascination, there is this interest in how he responds and it's it's not malice but he, he responds in such a way that just perplexes me that I can't wait to do more and more and more. However, it keeps giving me migraines. I think because I'm so intensely watching every nuance and every eye raise and every shoulder shrug that it's it's intense. There's no other word for it. Sure. And what's also interesting is he's just so open in his confession in the court. I can't wait to play these clips because they are fascinating. Look, let's go over the details. Dennis Rader, known as BTK, a moniker he gave himself in correspondence with police, with BTK standing for Bind, Torture, Kill, was responsible for the deaths of 10 known victims. His first known killing was the death of four of the Otero family, as well as the murders of six other female victims. The murders occurred between 1974 and 1991, and with no further leads in the case, it was considered cold in 2004. This turned out to be the catalyst for Raider to start writing to police and the media again, and it was this correspondence that would lead him to foolishly identify himself through evidence he sent to police. Now, tell me about that, Amanda. Yeah, so um, it was almost the same dumb luck as Gary Ridgway, I have to say, because what happened was that he was actually writing to the police um, through the newspapers at the time, because obviously... uh, because obviously the internet wasn't as great and a lot of people, especially, you know, 50-year-old man, doesn't really know how to use the internet. And he actually sent a letter to them saying, look, I want to send you a floppy disk. If I send you a floppy disk, can you actually trace that? And the police went, no. And so he sent it. And the first thing they did was find old deleted files off it with his name in it. (laughs) <laughs> so he was the president of the local church and oh. this was correspondence that he had been sending out on behalf of the church and all of this was in the metadata on this on this floppy disk. It took them seconds. It really Amazing. did. And the fact that he believed them um, was was just unbelievable. Well, just didn't understand technology, <laughs> obviously. So, Amanda... If we start at the end of this case, it'll bring us back full circle because in this case analysis, Raider was charged with the 10 murders in March 2005 and in June he pleaded guilty to all 10 murders and in court described the murders in detail. And that's where we're going to start this case. So set the scene for me. Yes, yeah, so usually we sort of start in, in between a case. We often start with the police confession. So this is further along the track. So... It had happened so quickly because, as we just said, he was charged in March and pleaded guilty in June. So there wasn't a lot of time for any of of, of that long-winded confessions. He was taken in and went, yeah, it, it was me. So setting the scene, it's obviously a courtroom. And Raider, to start off with, is the only person on camera. So it's it quite a tight portrait shot. Um, there's others around him and everything, but they're actually quite blurred out. Um, he's actually standing sort of facing almost the side of, of the courtroom and actually then turning his head towards the um, uh, judge, which is on his left. So there's this awkward stance all the time through it, which is quite odd. Uh, he's wearing um, a white shirt and tie. He's got on a cream uh, jacket as well. Um, he's wearing his glasses, uh, but he has a goatee. But other than that, he's cleanly shaven. Yet when we see his booking photos, he was very messy and he had messed up hair and all of that, obviously, from uh, the very um, fantastical way that he was arrested. But, you know, beside him, there is his legal team. And we will see them later during the confession. But for now, it's really just this tight, close look from sort of um, his lower chest up. And that's all we get to, to look at for his um, range of responses and body language. All right, well, this confession begins after he made the guilty plea. The judge asks him to provide the details of the murders and Radar obligingly complies. 
right, Mr. Rader, I need to find out more information. On that particular day, the 15th day of January, 1974, can you tell me where you went to kill Mr. Joseph Otero? Mm, I think it's 1834. Uh, Edgemore. All right. Can you tell me approximately what time of day you went there? Uh, somewhere between 7 and 7.30. Okay. We're already stopping the tape. <laughs> We're only like 30 seconds in. Um, I have a feeling this is going to be a long but very interesting journey. It is um, because this is a very different scenario. So, you know, we've done a few recordings that are in courtrooms, but this is the first full live confession. So they've played confessions in court before and that's how we've been able to get recordings, but this is different. You know, the media are all there. You know, this is not about trying to convince anyone of his innocence. This is not playing out the court case. This is about laying out all of the details, you know, and just like Cole Hep in, in, in a previous episode that we did, um, there is going to be stops and starts and the judge will ask him to clarify and things like that, but he's not going to stop for every single word because the court reporter can keep up. Maybe they should have court reporters in interrogations. I don't know. I, yeah. I, just 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 a thought. Anyway, um, he asked, as I said before, he actually has to turn his head to face the judge, but the, the cameras are getting him from all of these different angles and, and it's amazing. And his face is extremely expressive. So um, he scrunches up his mouth and he shrugs and he has this slight swing to his m movements because I know standing in, in this sort of twisted way, it's, it's going to hurt him after a while. Um, but he's being emotive, but he's emotionless at the same time. So mm. This is going to be very chop and change between all of these bits and pieces because there is so much in each little tiny nuance that we're actually going to go through. Okay, so the judge begins with the Otero family murders and has more questions for Raider. Buckle in, guys. This particular location, did you know these people? No, that's... Uh... No, that was part of my, uh, I guess, my what you call fantasy... These people were uh, selected. All right, so you okay. Okay. you were engaged in some kind of fantasy during this period of time? Uh, yes, sir. All right. Now, when you use the term fantasy, is this something you were doing for your personal pleasure? Uh, sexual fantasy, sir. I see. So in there, he stopped to ask his lawyer something in hushed tones before again turning to the judge to say it was a fantasy to select that house. It seems odd to me for him to say yes, sir, to that. To that. Yeah, um, this is a very different case, and I'm going to say this again and again, I'm sure. Um, but this is after everything that has occurred, and so the judge isn't going to ask anything that is a surprise for him. This is just him now going through the motions of getting this put out officially. So um, I've actually read the transcripts as well of all of this, as well as watching the tapes, you know, and he could have said when the judge asked about it being a fantasy, he kind of said yes, but he corrects him. He goes and says, it's a sexual fantasy, mm. you know. So this is a private thing which is now public. And so Raider is going to make it a show. But is he that wants a defence or is that just for shock value? This is for kink. This right. is just for him to say, you know, a fantasy is one thing, a sexual fantasy is something very, very different, especially when there's children involved. So he wants them to know that he is messed up and that he so likes this sort of stuff. Oh, yeah, you know, and he knows that there is going to be 10 murders that he has to go through and he's going to make sure that he gets every single detail in without elaborating. So it's quite interesting that he, he's, he's, he's basically on this scale. He just goes from one to the other saying, I'm just going to give you a little bit of information, but I'm going to pull back on other things and not show expressions, though I know that he's getting pleasure from all of this. Okay. Well, Raider then explains how the murders began on January 15, 1974. So you went to this residence, and what occurred then? Well, <clears throat> uh, I had uh, did some uh, thinking on what I was going to do to uh, either Mrs. Otero or Josephine, and uh, basically broke into the house, or didn't break into the house, but uh, when they came out of the house, I came in and confronted the family, and then we went from there. So he's basically confronted a family of four and told them to go back into the house. Yeah, I mean, this is his first murder, we believe, and he has taken on a family of four, including, like, a burly adult male. That's bold. You know, 
It is. It's massively bold. And, you know, this is why I can't help but think there had to have been dry runs. There had to have been attempts before that we don't know about. But um, at the same time, it seems that he hadn't expected the males to be home. So when he decided to strike, it was going to get messy. Well, Radar then explains what happened next. Had you planned this beforehand? To some degree, yes. Uh, after I got in the house, it, well, I lost control of it. But it, it was, you know, in the back of my mind, I had some ideas what I was going to do. But uh, I just, I basically panicked that first day, so. Beforehand, did you know who was there in the house? I thought Mrs. Otero and the two kids, the uh, two younger kids were in the house. I didn't realize Mr. Otero was going to be there. All right. So. His plan had been to sexually attack two of the family's females, Julie and 11-year-old Josephine. Yeah, it was. So that had been his fantasy and he later goes into how he actually stalks and chooses his victims. But because Joe Senior was actually there, he lost control of the scene. So um, this is important because it's always important to look at their first killings to see how a killer progresses from there. This is where they have the first situation and see how they adapt and they adopt different ways to handle the messiness that can come. You know, he knew then that he had to change things and he had to take Joe out, um, but with Joe Senior there as well, it was going to be different. And so he had to alter what the plan was. He actually said that he had a moment of should he fight or, or flight, you know, does he go through with it now or now that the plans have have to change does he make his excuses and run away or does he stay and attack them knowing that he could be overpowered by four against one even though they even though two of them are young children is it worth the risk to do this especially knowing that joe senior who was a military man is in the house what weaponry did he have oh we'll get to that (laughs) (laughs) oh manda I like spoilers. Haven't I told you that? (laughs) I know. He now has to move forward and take dominance over the scene. Let's find out how that happened. How did you get into the house? I came through the back door, uh, cut the phone lines, uh, waited at the back door, had reservations about even going or just walking away, but pretty soon the door opened and I was in. All right, so the door opened. Was it open for you or did something? I think one of the kids, I think the... uh, uh, junior, or not junior, yes, the uh, the young girl, uh, Joseph, opened the door. He probably let the dog out because the dog was in the house at that time. All right, when you went into the house, what happened then? Well, I confronted the family, uh, pulled a pistol, uh, confronted Mr. Otero, and asked him to, uh, you know, that I was there to basically, I was uh, wanted. Uh, Wanted to uh, get the car. I was hungry, food. I was wanted, and asked him to lie down in the uh, living room. And uh, at that time, I realized that wouldn't be a really good idea. So I finally, the dog was a real problem. So I uh, asked Mr. Otero if he could get the dog out. So he had one of the kids put it out, and then I took him back to the bedroom. You took who back to the bedroom? Uh, the family to the bedroom. They had four members. Okay, I'm intrigued about how he did this. So weapon-wise, the gun was the likely way he subdued the family, right? Yeah, and he made up the ruse that he was there to rob them. He wanted to take their car and their valuables because he was wanted and so it was about getting in and getting out quickly. So the gun was a threat, but it's not a threat of death, but a threat of control. So, you know, basically saying to them, keep quiet, no one has to get hurt. You know, taking the dog out would have settled it as well because where the dog barking at him, you know, he couldn't speak to them and they would have been yelling at the dog to be quiet and they're crying and upset and scared and, and not knowing what to go on. So removing the dog was very, very clever and Um, a threat of death leaves them with no option but to attack if it's a threat of a robbery yeah you're being careful because you figure we all just want to get out of this exactly exactly and so that's why these sorts of ruses work because people say if i don't try and jump this guy he's not going to have to use his gun he's going to take what he needs and goes possessions can be replaced people's lives cannot so the family were compliant you know they hoped that by remaining calm taking the dog out when he asked them to do that and all of that that he would just take the car and the stuff and go you know Raider still at this point had time to leave if he wanted to if he didn't think he could take on a family of four Mm -hmm. well he then tied them up all right what happened then at that time i tied him up 
while still holding him at gunpoint? Well, in between tying and yes. Yeah. Interesting. He's quick to correct the judge there. I mean, how facetious can you be? Oh, of course, you know, basically I couldn't exactly hold the gun and tie them up. So, you know, I did have them between those those moments. Like, don't be stupid. But at the same time, he's sort of giving them his, his plan. So though he is correcting the judge, he's doing this to make it, positive that he knows what's happening and and the process that this takes you know you mm. can't hold a gun and tie up a family at, at the same time so he makes that distinction and during that he actually sighed a number of times you know this is all boring to him because this isn't one of the cases he really wants to talk about and it's also he knows this really well and we're dealing with details that he doesn't care about well, exactly. And we're going to see this again and again and again. He has to keep referring to their, their names. He looks down at a piece of paper to get their names. I mean, if that's not a smack in the face, I don't know what is. Well, he doesn't know their names. He didn't care about their names. They exactly. weren't people to him. We always exactly. talk about the humanisation of the victim. And yep. these weren't human beings to him. Nope. Nope. He just had four objects instead of two. Yeah. Well, he then goes into details that we wouldn't usually hear. All right, after you tied them up, what occurred? Well, uh, they started complaining about uh, being tied up, and I re-loosened the bonds a couple of times, uh, tried to make Mr. Otero as comfortable as I could. Uh, currently had a cracked rib from a car accident, so I had him put a pillow down on for his head. Uh, had he put a, uh, I think he's a parker or a coat underneath him. Uh, they, uh, you know, they talked to me about... Uh, you know, giving the car and whatever money. I guess they didn't have very much money. And uh, there I realized that, uh, you know, I was already, I didn't have a mask on or anything. They already could ID me and uh, made made a decision to go ahead and and put them down, I guess, or strangle them. You know, this is really rare. We don't usually get this kind of insight. We often hear about what they did in their confession, but we're actually getting to go through the his mind's process. Yeah, yeah. I mean, this is really something that is clumsy and awkward and killers don't usually include this stuff, you know, oh, I tripped over here, I fell there, I accidentally stabbed myself here. Mm. But here we're actually hearing this. So, um, you know, several times he, he has the thoughts of does he stow, does he go or does he stay? You know, it's dead or, or alive. Does he leave these victims? I'm not wearing a mask. What what are the options if I do leave? If I think, no, I really don't think I can go through with this. And this is how those sliding doors can actually change things. So we've already seen that no matter how carefully he had planned this out as part of his sexual fantasy, um, these fantasies are vivid and he has all of these thoughts, but then he turns up and there's four people instead of two, you know, because Joseph Otero Sr. was home, because he'd had a car accident so he couldn't drive and they only had one car and the noisiness of the dog and the way that he had to tie them up and manoeuvring around the home, how he gave Joseph Otero a, a, a cushion to lie on, tightening and retightening and loosening the binds, all of this. He's trying to expect, he's trying to exude this um, persona of being um, kind and gentle. You know, we expect that these killers go in in a rage, that they're angry, that, you know, that there's all of this um, a forethought of, of being cruel and horrible. Mm. But that's only a small part. You can only kill someone once. Well, actually, we're about to see that that's actually not true. But mm. he's, he's showing here that um, he, he was trying to keep them as calm as possible. But... That's not what's going to happen. People react differently. You know, the the mum was probably crying. The two children were were probably upset. The husband is probably trying to do his best to keep everyone quiet and hoping that this is just going to be a quick issue that, you know, it is going to traumatise them for life, but they will still be able to get out of it alive. So, you know, we, we... remember what these killers do but we don't get to see this we don't get to see oh you know the dog wouldn't shut up and oh the poor guy had had rib injury so I had to move things for him you know it just shows how he's managing these people in his first ever major crime and this is such an insight that we don't get to see and I think this is also quite unique. Mm. Well, the judge then takes Raider through the individual victims and what he did to them. And like you said before, it's actually quite difficult to kill someone. All right, 
what did you do to Joseph Otero? Senior? Joseph Otero? Yeah, yeah, Joseph Otero Sr., Mr. Otero, the father. I uh, put a plastic bag over his head and then some cords and tighten it. And this was in the bedroom? Yes, sir. Did he, in fact, uh, suffocate and die as a result of this? Not right away. No, sir, he didn't. What happened? Uh, well, after that, I, uh, I did Mrs. Otero. Uh, I had never strangled anyone before, so I really didn't know how much pressure you had to put on a person or how long it would take. But Was she also tied up there in the yes, bedroom? Yes, uh -huh. yeah, both her hands and their feet were tied up. She was on the bed. Where were the children? Uh, well, uh, Josephine was on the bed, and uh, Junior was on the floor at this time. So we're, we're talking, first of all, about Joseph Otero. So you put the bag over his head and tied it, mm -hmm. and he did not die right away. Can you tell me what happened in regards to Joseph? Uh, he moved over real quick-like, and I think tore a hole in the bag, and I could tell that he was having some problems there. But at that time, the, the whole family just went, uh, they went panicked on me, so I, I worked pretty quick. I got what Mrs. Did you, you worked pretty quick. Well, what I mean, I, 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 I strangled Mrs. Otero, and she went out, or passed out. I thought she was dead. She passed out. And I strangled uh, uh, Josephine. She passed out, or I thought she was dead. And uh, then I went over and, uh, put, a, uh, and then, uh, put a bag on uh, uh, Junior's head. And, uh, and then... Uh, if I remember right, uh, Mrs. Otero came back. So he thought he did it all pretty quickly, but really they had all just passed out. Yeah, it actually takes uh, quite a lot of pressure to strangle someone. Um, but passing out actually comes quickly. So he would have seen it in the films. You know, he'd fantasised about it. He'd played with his own autoerotic asphyxia, you know. But, yeah, he didn't know how far he would need to go. So uh, he found out pretty quickly that he hadn't gone far enough. So, again, there's no embellishing just the facts. Mm. And the judge has to keep bringing him back on track, you know. And if Raider stuffs this up... It could lead to later appeals. So they have to keep sort of going back and saying, you're talking about Joseph Otero Sr., you're talking about his wife. They have to keep doing that over and over again to make sure that what he's saying is the right thing. But he likes to add those little flourishes in about, you know, that this was um, sexual fantasy and stuff yeah. like that. So we'll see that again and again. As you said, the judge has to keep bringing him back into the process and, and we'll hear that now. Sir, let me ask you about Joseph Otero Sr. Senior. indicated he had torn a hole in the bag. Mm -hmm. What did you do with him then? I put another bag over it, or either that or a, if I recollect, I think I put a uh, either a cloth or a T-shirt or something over it, over his head, and then a bag, another bag. Did, he, sub him. did he subsequently die? Well, yes. I mean, I, I mean, I was, I didn't just stay there and watch him. That I was moved around the room. But. All right, so you indicated you strangled Mrs. Otero after you had done this, is that correct? Now I went back and strangled her again, and that, that finally killed her at that time. So this is in regards to count two. You first of all put the bag over Joseph Otero's head, mm -hmm. and he tore a hole in the bag. Mm -hmm. Then you went ahead. Did you strangle Mrs. Otero then, okay. or did you go first back? Of all, first of all, Mr. Otero was strangled, or a bag put over his head and strangled. Then I thought he was going down, and I went over and strangled Mrs. Otero, and I thought she was down. Uh, just want to stop there. There's an unusual choice of words in there. He's saying down, not dead. Exactly, and this is quite telling. You know, he's, he's creating a bit of distance between him and the crimes. Yeah. So, you know, going down is a lot less forceful than saying, I killed them. So it's quite interesting. And he will use that word again and again. So he will say down, and they're basically down for the count, but he's actually using it uh in, in replace of dead. So we have to remember that, you know, but there's also the fact that he forgets Josephine's name and so he keeps looking back at his notes. You know, it's it's just quite offensive and Josephine would actually die the worst death and here he's not even remembering her name. You know, I know that the Otero family were there because there was actually three older children who found their, their family later and Charlie and, and, and his brother and sister 
actually came into this scene later. So the fact that they're sitting in this court case listening to uh, um, Raider talk about their family and having to look for the names, it's just, um, it's obscene. It really is, you know. But as you said before and as we've said many times, they're objects. They aren't people. Mm, mm. Well, he then describes his second attempt at killing them. Then I strangled uh, uh, Josephine while she was down and then I went over to Junior and put the bag on his head. After that, Mrs. Otero woke back up and, uh, you know, she was pretty upset what's going on. So I came back and uh, at that point in time strangled her uh, for, for the death strangle at that time. With your hands or what? No, with a cord, with a, with a rope. Is it just me or does he not seem too happy to go over what is essentially a failure? No, he wants to get to the good parts. He wants to describe what he does well. So this first case is always the most important because they're failures, they learn and they Mm. adjust and things change. So when you look at a serial killer, looking at their first cases, that's where they're going to make the most mistakes and that's the, the closer you are to getting to them because they do things which are, uh, innate in them, whereas later they actually change and and adapt in a way that makes them more successful. So um, this being a total failure, he really had his doubts. And so we're hearing him say, you know, I could have left. Oh, I thought they were dead, but they weren't. I didn't realise how long it takes, you know. And taking four lives is a massive mass murder, basically. And it's almost unprecedented. There are some that have done this um, and there are some that have just done this, you know, We've got people like John List and and, um, Christopher Watts just a couple of years ago now. But looking at this case is is the most important and they will spend the most time on this case. But he doesn't want to talk about having to go back and re-kill these people. You know, he he thought he'd done a good job, but he'd actually failed. Mm. Well, he continues with how he continued to kill them for a second time. Then I, uh, I think at that point in time, I redid Mr. Otero, put the bag over his head, uh, went over, and then took Junior. Oh, oh, before that, she asked me to uh, to, to uh, save her son, so I actually had taken the bag off, and then I was really upset at that point in time. So basically, when Mr. Otero was down, Mrs. Otero was down, I went ahead and, and uh, took uh, Junior, I put another bag over his head, and took him to the other bedroom at that time. He really seems focused there on making sure the parents were dead first. He did, and this is why when Julio Terra woke up, you know, he made sure that Joseph Sr. was dead because he wanted to focus on the children. The, the, the children were the basic reason he was there. It, this was all about Josephine, the 11-year-old daughter. She was the prize. Mm-hmm. It seems very clinical and almost simple. It does because he's talking from his viewpoint and he's making it sound like that he was all kind and calm, you know, and that he'd taken the the plastic bag off Joe Jr.'s face and, you know, that when when uh, Julie woke up he made sure that she was then dead for the second time and, you know, but what he's not talking about is that he had actually gagged all of the family before he, he put the bags over them. You know, when the police later arrive, there's actually blood on them, you know. So remember, he's the BTK. We're hearing about binding and we're hearing about killing. He's forgetting about the torture between, isn't he? He's not talking well, he's not about forgetting that. forgetting it. He's, he's living just not it talking out. about it. Exactly. So um, when when Charlie Otero came home, and I think he was about 15 at the time, um, he, he found his parents and he actually went and, and tried to remove all of, of their binding. But Joseph Otero Sr. had actually bitten his tongue almost completely off. That's how, how savage this attack was. And, and his face was all badly bruised. So, you know, these are brutal crimes with a lot more violence that is not being included in this confession. So, Amanda, let me get a few things clear in my head. He's strangled the parents. They're dead. He's then strangled Joe Jr. Now, did he strangle Joe Jr. in the same room? Because you just mentioned that he took Joe Jr. to another room. Is that before or after being strangled? Well, he was strangled the first time with the others and and, and revived. So then once uh, Raider had killed the two parents, he then actually took Joseph Jr. to another bedroom and strangled him in there. Now, so that's a, two attempts again. 
It is. It took two attempts on all of them, you know, but it's interesting that he had to remove the boy to another room. We don't know why he did that, but it suggests to me that there was some interference that probably happened there because we keep hearing about the binding and the killing, but we don't hear about the torturing. Hmm. Well, he's then asked about Josephine's death. And then when I went back, uh, Josephine had woke back up. What did you do then? I took her to the basement and eventually uh, hung her. Again, he makes it sound so clinical. Yeah, and what happened to Josephine was the most horrifying. So he actually told her, I'm going to kill you. You're going to heaven to be with your parents. Like he he psychologically tortured her, if nothing else. Um, but as we hear, he just goes, I took her to the basement and hanged her. But that's not exactly what happens. No, but the judge does press him for more details. Let's have a listen to that. Are you hung her in the basement? Yes, sir. Did you do anything else at that time? Yes, I, uh, I had some sexual fantasies. But that was uh, after she was hung. All right. What does that mean? He had some sexual fantasies. Well, what he'd done is he'd actually hanged her from a pipe in in, in the basement's roof. Um, He had hung her to a point that her toes could touch the ground, but she couldn't hold herself up. So she was hanging. He then removed her lower half of garments. So she was naked from the waist down except for socks. And he'd also torn her bra as he tried to take it off her. So we can see that there was force to that. And then he tied her knees together. And so while she struggled and and, and was fighting for life, he masturbated all over, over the floor in front of her. So they were actually able to collect some of that, which was then able to be linked. So he didn't interfere with her as such. He masturbated in front of her. Well, I mean, we have to take his his side of the story because she can't tell. So, yeah. but they, there was semen found at her feet. Um, there was no evidence of sexual torture beyond basically the autoerotic asphyxia type of scenario that he's played out himself, mm. and he he made her reenact for him. Um, but yeah, it was it was all part of his sexual fantasy. But they're violent sexual fantasies, yeah, and absolutely. you know, no doubt. I mean, of course, the, uh, they were all dead. Yeah, you I know. mean, with the force that it took him to tear her bra, he he wasn't being kind and gentle, that's for sure. Yeah, right. Well, the judge then asked Raider to describe what he did when he was done. What did you do then? Went through the house, uh, kind of cleaned it up. Uh, it's called the right-hand rule. You go from room to room, uh, picked everything up. I think I took uh, Mr. Otero's watch there. I guess I took a radio. I uh, I forgot about that, but apparently I took a radio. Why did you take these things? I don't know. Uh, I have no idea. Just uh, what happened then? I uh, got the keys to the car. In fact, I had the keys, I think, earlier before that because I wanted to make sure I had a, a way of getting out of the house and uh, clean the house up a little bit, make sure everything's packed up and left through the front door. And, uh, and went there went over to their car and then drove over to uh, Dylan's, left the car there, then eventually walked back to my car. So he's used their car to get over to wherever he's left his car, so his car was never seen at the, at the scene, and he's just dumped their car and walked back to his car. Yeah, so... Um it's it's an odd thing he does, and he will do that again and again and again. He parks nearby, but not Is close it odd, enough. Considering it keeps his car away from the scene of the crime. No, because it, it will be seen, um, but by being seen in the victim's car as well. Because let's face it, we know neighbours' cars, and if we see someone driving car and we sort of wave and it's not that person, that's actually a bigger risk. So um, he should have done that. But it's just odd that this is something that he he has to talk about. Oh, I, I stole a radio. Um, I don't know why, but I did. But you know, that was just something I did. It's weird that he he talks about that, but then he he forgets the order in which he killed these people and things like mm. that. So um, it's always the bigger things that we hear, hear about, but we're hearing about some of the smaller things here um, because he has the whole story and so now he has to answer questions without it being a toing and froing. So this is about him sort of pl- playing out what is being asked. So he's not volunteering much information, but he will correct the judge when the when the judge 
ask inane questions that he, he thinks a waste is a waste of time. So um, he, he doesn't go into a great deal of detail purely because he doesn't want there to be further scrutiny because people don't want to come back to him and say, well, why did you do that and this and that? And so he's trying to just create the narrative um, without... He's trying to um, he's he's trying to make his involvement in this less than it is. You know, he mm. is the serial killer of of ten people, but he's trying to make it seem like this was just something that people do daily. Well, that's interesting. That's an interesting take because, and then we get a short respite from the one camera. So this whole time, it's been one camera, the camera you described before, and instead we get a quick flick to the camera behind radar that gives us a view of the judge as well as the big burly prison guard sitting right <laughs> behind where Raider, where Raider is standing. Now, then we see some legal toing and froing from the two sides, in particular to the address of the Otero home. All right. Now, sir, from what you have just said, I take it that the facts you've told me apply to both counts one, all of counts one, two, three, and four. Is that correct? Yes, sir. Now, Mr. Rader. Yes. And that is originally, I believe, he indicated 1834 Edgemore. The address was actually 803 Edgemore. I'd ask you for the curtains that we can what had happened. I don't believe the exact address is important. Amanda, we're getting to the point where there's a lot of chatter now and we're hearing then the prosecution come in trying to get those little details that you talked about correct, like the address, so that this... I assume is to stop the case from getting thrown out on technicalities? Yeah, it is because um, he literally looks down at his notes and purposefully says the wrong address. Ah. You know, he's, you know, like he keeps looking up Josephine's name. He's, he's, it's, it's an arrogance and it's a, a show of his power and his control that everything that is currently happening is because he's standing there doing this and this is how it goes. So he's going to do things like that to, to then say later, oh, yeah, but I said it happened at this address and now you're telling me it's some different address. Well, how do we know that I was actually in that house then? And stupid things like that can actually have cases thrown out. So this is why they, they declare it saying, no, it's this address instead. And the defence team had to say, yes, that's correct, we made a mistake. So it's silly things like that that can happen that can totally change a case. So this is why as soon as the prosecution had a chance to, to speak up, because they haven't really in all, all this time, they did speak up and say, can we have that corrected, please, in, in the note? So that would have been fixed and changed. Okay. Well, that's what we're going to have to leave it for in this episode. What can we expect in the next episode as the confessions continue? Well, we head on to the murder and attack on Catherine and Kevin Bright. So, again, he's going to mess up and, again, he's not going to be happy to talk about how he messed things up, but uh, we also see how he adapts and some things that he failed to change. Okay, that will happen in the next edition of Monsters Who Murder Serial Killer Confessions. Amanda Howard, the Serial Killer Whisperer, thank you very much. We'll see you next week. Thank you. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.